Hello and welcome. I'm player one, your burly half-orc monk ready to throw down. And I'm your elven zen monk archer, player two. And welcome to player one bias. So in case you couldn't tell from our intro... Today's episode is going to be focused on Dungeons & Dragons, the famous role-playing game. And if you aren't familiar with tabletop role-playing games, the concept is pretty simple. It's a very open world. You as a player play a fictional character, usually in a fantasy or sci-fi setting, and you act or react to different challenges presented to you by a game master. And you use dice rolls and, and character statistics to determine your success chance. It's definitely uh, a, a very math-based game. You know, it's uh, uh, something that you can sit down, play with some friends, hang out, uh, but also be able to focus on, you know, a, a fun and creative game that, that uses some thinking power behind it, not just, you know, point and click or something like that. And so in D&D, &D, uh, your character is based off six main traits uh, that really determine most of, of what your character is, what he does, and how he's able to affect the world around him. And, you know, that's strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. And on top of those abilities, you have lots of character customization options, like your fighting style and upbringing, which is usually summarized in your character class. And you have also the choice of the character race you would like to play, and a bunch of other more smaller detailed options you can play around with. So I think we'll go ahead and just jump into the history, kind of give you guys a background of where D&D came from and and how it started and how it's evolved over time. Uh, so it all started in 1967 uh, with a guy named Gary Gygax. Uh, and, and, you know, with his name, how, how it's hard to not be a nerd and, you know, to be, be hanging out playing rural top games and, or, or tabletop games and role-playing games and stuff like that. Uh, so in 1967, he invented uh, the International Federation of Wargaming. And this was basically, he was just sitting around in his basement or at you know, different conventions or whatever, playing games with friends, and he decided this was a way for him to be able to start creating games uh, and publishing games. And so the IWF uh, provides a venue for war game fans to exchange ideas and amateur designs. Uh, he already had friends you know, who were in this scene with him. Um, and definitely one of the most influential games that, that, that really pushed Gygax in this direction of, of tabletop games was called Gettysburg. Um, and it's, it's basically risk for kids who think risk is too easy. Um, and, and him and some, some friends got into it, uh, and, and they really started basing a lot of their games off of Gettysburg. It, it was a huge inspiration for what they did. So in 1968, Gygax hosts the first Lake Geneva War Games Convention, or Gen Con, which even today is a huge event. Uh, it's grown over time, and, and it's really cool that it started uh, at first with essentially Dungeons and & Dragons and, and definitely coming out of that. Um, so in 1969, Gygax meets Dave Arneson, uh, and this is kind of where we hit our, our second main creator of Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, they met at the second Gen Con, uh, and they both kind of expressed an interest of, of creating a game together. Uh, Arneson kind of came in with a, a, a little bit of awe. You know, Gygax was almost a celebrity. This guy had, had been publishing games before. Uh, he, was, he was working through stuff. He was kind of famous in this scene. Uh, and so Arneson was, basically came to Gygax with, with an idea for a game uh, and was really excited to talk to this guy who was kind of famous in this scene. And this is where we get, in 1971, Chainmail. Um, so this was written by Gygax and Jeff Perrin, uh, and, and they had published it. Um, it details fantastic medieval miniature warfare, uh, including wizards, heroes, and dragons. So we're kind of starting to get into the origins of D&D &D here. Um, so Arneson uh, and Gygax take Chainmail, uh, and they're using it kind of as the rule set and, and base uh, for these games that they were uh, creating and playing. Uh, Arneson had the Blackmoor campaign, uh, which it... it if, if you play D&D, you'll know from later on, as this does come into some later editions and uh, so, some preset little adventures that you can do. Um, and, and Gygax was using Chainmail at his house and playtesting it uh, with his kids, actually, uh, which is kind of unique. Um, in, in most creative duos that you'll see, whether that's you know Steve Jobs and Wozniak or 
you know, uh, if, if you've seen the, the Facebook movie, you kind of have the Mark Wahlberg and then the business guy. Uh, and this definitely relates to this. This Gygax was a bit more on that creative side, a little bit more nerdy, you know. Uh, and Arneson was definitely on the on the opposite end of that spectrum. So I gotta ask, which one uh, are you in in this creative duo of ours? <laughs> I uh, think I you're think the the I charismatic th- lead or or the the creative guy behind the scenes. I think uh, we we each have a little bit of both. Um, but that's, if I that's had that's a very to, political answer. If I had to choose, I think I might be a little bit more of the Arneson. Uh, okay, might be a little bit more of the Steve Jobs, you know. All right, all right. Uh, Noted. <laughs> so in 1973, uh, Gygax and Arneson uh, collaborated on the first draft of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, so we're really starting to break on to, you know, they're really getting into rules. They're making through editing Chainmail after all this playtesting they had done, uh, you know, with different, different people, bringing in all these different perspectives and trying to make it uh, a solid, cohesive game. Uh, and with this, Gygax uh, forms a partnership um, that, that, that's being called Tactical Studies and Rules. Um, this is later joined by Brian Bloom, uh, who again was a little bit more on the business side and was helping market it and get, start to get the game out. So in 1974, uh, after TSR had been started, uh, Dungeons and Dragons is published uh, in January. It was three booklets, which, uh, if, if you know now, Dungeons & Dragons gets released as different sets of books that you use to create the different aspects of each campaign that you're playing. Um, it was shipped out in a wood grain colored cardboard box with an initial run of a thousand games. And that actually ends up selling out in one year, which was pretty crazy for the time. So original D&D is essentially a European fantasy-based module using rules from this miniature-based war game we've discussed, Chainmail. Uh, The difference was, instead of having uh, an objective such as kill the other guy's army, it was very open in nature and put more emphasis on role-playing. And so it was praised for its flexibility and essentially like the infinite number of possibilities you have when playing this game. It was acknowledged at the time, however, that... The prep time needed to develop these adventures was massive, and the learning curve to pick up all the rules of the game were, uh, was a very steep barrier of entry. So the original D&D uh, differs pretty, pretty heavily from our, our later editions that, that a lot of people have played and that has gotten more popular. Uh, it, it's been described as e- each person essentially playing a, a really complicated minigame by themselves. Took takes out some of that social and collaborative uh, stuff that you see now in current D&D. Um, and a, a fun little fact was originally the, the dungeon master or DM, the guy who kind of manages what's going on with all of the players, uh, was in another room. Uh, and there was a player that was designated to have to yell to the dungeon master what was happening uh, with the players. So that way the dungeon master could do what he needed to do to continue the campaign. And then the dungeon master would yell back to the players what happened. Uh, and this was kind of there as a mechanic to keep the dungeon master from knowing what the players were discussing and thinking to allow for a more you know strategic game and this is a pretty fundamental difference from the way D is run now uh, the way it's typically viewed is that your dungeon master or, or game master is there to make it entertaining and challenge the players but you aren't enemies right his goal is just to make it fun and provide you with things to to have to deal with Whereas in the original iteration, it was almost opposing sides, right? The dungeon master is trying to win, and the players are each trying to win their game. Which, uh, to me, seems like it'd be a little bit less fun. You know, now it's, I definitely feel like, you know, when we play and stuff, it's a social game. I'm there, like, having a good time with my friends while we're doing something that's also fun. And I think, you know, taking that out uh, is, is definitely a, a change that I'm glad they've made. I, I don't think I would enjoy it as much, and I don't think I would have gotten into it if it was how it used to be. Well, I think at this point, video games are so developed, right, that if you want to have that competitive challenge in medieval-style combat, there's a, a million games that exist where you guys can sit down and, and go toe-to-toe or head-to-head. Part of the fun of D&D now is you have the flexibility to come up with whatever you're interested in, even if it's outside an established genre or, or storyline or something like true, that. Yeah. 
Now in 74, that could have been very different. Absolutely. So a couple of the things that uh, D&D, the original D&D, introduced that were pretty important and big uh, for the game itself uh, was was that, that math-based type of game. This didn't really exist. There wasn't video games that had an engine that were calculating the math for you. You know, this was something definitely very, very new. Um, so the rolling mechanics were, were very important. It was something that really hadn't ever occurred before, you know. You're having to roll a dice for chance to, you know, determine what your character was or, you know, to determine what your attacks and damage do or what your abilities are. Uh, and so kind of this math-based thing was very new. It also introduced an alignment system, um, which was, you know, kind of revolutionary at the time, really. It, 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 the alignment system is something that you pick that chooses how your character goes throughout the game and what decisions they make. So for example, uh, you know, uh, one alignment would be chaotic good. Um, so it's someone who considers himself to be a good person, but doesn't always handle things in that typical moral fashion. Uh, they may be running around and be a little bit more crazy or whatever, uh, but the alignment system is how, how, it al how, how you determine what your character does. It's kind of his motive and how he acts. Basically so, identifies if you're like the Robin Hood type character, the very stuffy rule follower, or the more malicious necromancer type. Yeah, the evildoer, the one going out there and just murdering random people, you know? So in 1977, um, there there was a little bit of split between, between our creators, uh, which, again, kind of follows the trend of, of most of these, you know, duo creator type situations. Uh, so in 1977, um, they actually published a, a new edition of D&D, technically, uh, called Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. However, it was essentially just a repackaging. They changed the name, uh, and this was done for uh, a lawsuit. Dave Arneson uh, was suing, as he wasn't really involved anymore uh, in the creation or implementation of Dungeons & Dragons at this time. Uh, and he was suing... Uh, he, he ended up suing uh, Dungeons & Dragons, the TSR, uh, when they changed the name to Advanced D&D uh, because he wanted to get continue getting royalties from the game. But the whole reason that they changed the name to Advanced Dungeons & Dragons is because they could say, oh, it's not the same game anymore. You know, this is Advanced D&D, even though it's literally the exact same book inside. It now says Advanced D&D on the cover, which means it's completely different. That's right. Um, Obviously, Arneson wasn't very happy with that and wanted to keep getting royalties, so he did He did end up suing. Now we get a little bit of a time jump here, uh, and this is actually due to Gary Gygax moving out to Los Angeles, going to Hollywood, uh, and he starts, starts trying to sell Dungeons & Dragons to Hollywood. Uh, he ends up getting a, a small about, TV show that uh, talk runs about worlds for two colliding. years. Oh, yeah, you know, completely different. Um, which actually may have may have been a little bit of a struggle for him getting his show. But he ends up getting an animated show that runs for two years. Uh, at the time, had a decent reception. Some people still enjoy it now, uh, but it, it, it is definitely dated. Absolutely. Uh, and then we move along to 1989. Uh, and this is where Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, the second edition, is released. Uh, and this is a new game. This is no longer a rebranding. It's a redesign of the game, but it is intended to be backwards compatible with the original Advanced D&D. So mechanically, things work very similarly, and a lot of things can be used between editions. However, there were some attempts to clean up Dungeons & Dragons' image. It was starting to gain a bad rap for being satanic uh, and summoning demons and that kind of thing. So they removed all references to demons and devils. And particularly the flavor text provided in the rules materials was more focused on heroic actions, rescuing the princess, saving the village, instead of just being you pick and choose, do what you want. I think it was also think, marketed. Oh, go ahead. I think we see this, you know, a lot now and e even back, you know, when we were kids that uh, a lot of this stuff kind of gets a bad rap, typically from you know a little bit more of the religious side being you know satanic or or having issues or whatever a lot of, a lot of nerdy stuff which i've always thought was you know slightly amusing because the nerdy stuff probably would typically keep your kids away from you know 
doing drugs or getting into trouble. So the fact that, you know, some of these groups who wanted nice kids were were hitting on all this nerd stuff was pr- pretty amusing to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it has, uh, there's a couple of factors. Obviously, anything that references magic and casting spells is going to be an issue for a certain group of people. Always. Uh, and also, typically, the the nerdier teens and the people who are going to be into this kind of thing also have your reputation for being kind of edgy, right? So chances are there probably were a lot of Dungeons & Dragons games that were kind of morally ambiguous because, <laughs> you know, teenagers hang out in the basement, right, wanted to right, be, like, right, super right. badass or whatever. But in general, pretty harmless. And with this edition, they do attempt to market towards a slightly younger group at, aimed at teenagers and young adults rather than your adult strategic war gamers who are pursuing it as, like, a hobby and a, and a strategic game almost like chess uh there are a couple other small additions notably dragons get a lot stronger uh, in the first edition there was something of a pushover which is a problem if you're going to name your game dungeons and dragons they also modified the combat system to something a little closer to what we see today where you have a chance to hit and then you subtract your ch- your your attack chance from uh, their armor score and that'll tell you whether or not you hit they also introduced critical hits as an optional rule, which is a very famous part of Dungeons and Dragons mechanics. And distances were changed to in-game units of feet rather than a miniature board unit of inches. So instead of measuring the distance between miniatures, now it's just keep track of what's going on in this fictional realm. So in uh, 1991, so we're moving past Advanced D&D in the second edition. Uh, we kind of get a new development that's that's pretty big. Uh, it's called Neverwinter Nights, and this is an online graphical multiplayer role-playing game. Uh, and this is this is a huge game changer. This is the first time you get a role-playing game that is uh, all, all of its features are are math-based that has graphics. Uh, you know, massive massive hit. This is taking something that was increasingly popular and putting it on something that was new and fun uh, and that a lot of people that were you know currently playing D&D or whatever uh, were already using or also introducing a lot of more people into D&D through gaming. Uh, and so it being the first role-playing game to feature graphics was massive. Now you're having, you know, uh, it, it helps to draw in some more crowds. Now you're having this, this visual that really changes the game uh, past just what, you know, a text-based adventure might um, and this, this really starts to push uh, the trend in RPGs of having that, that math-based you know, combat or abilities um, in RPGs. And it, it really starts to make Dungeons & Dragons way more relevant. Uh, and it, the trend of RPGs based on D&D-style mechanics was huge. I mean, almost anyone who's played a video game at some point has played a game based almost entirely on Dungeons & Dragons mechanics. Absolutely, and as, you know there were, there have been quite a few that have been branded with Dungeons and Dragons uh, as we move into the second one here. So in 1998, Baldur's Gate uh, was released. I mean this this was a massive game. It was breaking records everywhere, uh, insanely popular. Uh, so this was developed by Bioware. Um, they used the Infinity Engine, which was again you know revolutionary for that time. Um, uh, it, it was also, uh, you know, the basis for several other second edition uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons c- computer adaptations, uh, a, a lot of which were Baldur's Gate's, uh, you know, follow-up sequels. Um, this was a massively popular RPG, uh, a little before my time, uh, so I, I actually have never played Baldur's Gate, um, but people loved it, and, and it really continued the trend of this math-based RPG that was exploding at the time. So moving into 1999, this is kind of where we get a revitalization of Dungeons and Dragons. So uh, before this point, they were kind of going into stagnation. They were losing money. Uh, They were mismanaged by the Bloom brothers who uh, uh, ended up hopping onto TSR uh, and working with Dungeons and Dragons uh, pretty early on from the beginning. Um, they mismanaged the company. They were, you know, massively in debt. We're talking millions and millions of dollars. Um, so they end up having to sell. 
uh, and they sell to Wizards of the Coast, which at this time, uh, a little bit more popular of a company. Uh, by 99, uh, they've already released Magic the Gathering, so they're big, they got a ton of money. It, it's a pretty massive transition here. Um, and it really, it really changes the game, too. Uh, there's, there's a pretty massive difference between your first two editions uh, and Advanced D&D than, than, than you see in the third and fourth edition uh, that we'll get to here in a little bit. And I think this kind of reflects uh, what we were talking about earlier, where we were like, man, I don't know if I would have played the original version of D&D. And we were thinking in a more modern context where you have all these video games that do stuff like this. And by 1999, you you literally had D&D video game. You didn't Absolutely. have to get together with five of your friends and, and duke it out. Like you could do that on a computer or play people over the internet. Yeah, Baldur's So it really Gate. did take... Yeah, exactly. Neverwinter Night. Uh, yeah, absolutely filled that filled that little gap. And so it really took a change in the way D&D was meant to be played and marketed in order for it, the paper version to still be successful. Yeah, and I, I think Wizards of the Coast did um, you know, a great job with that. I definitely think you know, at times there can be a little bit of uh, debate into, you know, whether Wizards of the Coast is a great company or, you know, not so great. Uh, but I, yeah, I, depending I really on think- uh, depending on you know what game people play that was or formerly was a Wizards of the Coast product, you'll get different answers. Yeah, absolutely. But I think they did well with this one. Yeah, I think Universal Agreement Dungeons and Dragons is a product that they've been able to maintain uh, at the forefront for a pretty long period of time. Absolutely. Um, and so, kind of with when it gets taken over by Wizards of the Coast, there's there's a couple things that happen. Not quite this early on, but. Um, you're starting to see uh, other famous sci-fi series, and we're you know we're talking later into the 2000s here, but other famous sci-fi series start to pick up this you know Dungeons and Dragons mechanics uh, and start creating role-playing games of their own, you know D&D spinoffs, uh, and and this you know I think further serves to push this tabletop role-playing uh, type situation. Uh, also, when Wizard of the coast starts to take over and they're they're publishing different books um and really increasing it uh, i think the artwork is incredibly impactful um when they started working on it i mean we're talking just beautiful artwork i remember you know the first time i ended up seeing one of your books uh it was you know the monster manual or whatever just just flipping through the pages looking at those pictures was awesome for me yeah there's a lot more to it than just rules text Visually, they try to make the products look good. And that's something they've done with a lot of their product lines, like Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons has very much been about the artwork. Yeah, you know, with Magic, I mean, how many people buy and try to collect cards purely based on the artwork? It could be an awful card, but the artwork's amazing, and people will be buying it, and the price will be going up like crazy, you know? Absolutely. So later in the 2000s, you also kind of get into this transition of paper gaming. You know, you have a sheet of paper that you're writing down all your stats on, uh, that you're, you're, you're keeping all these notes, you're, you're going through and keeping track of everything on. Uh, and, and it does eventually start to transition to electronic, you know, uh, which I think was inevitable. Uh, definitely helps in, in keeping track of things and making sure everything's all set up. Uh, yeah, I mean, math isn't cool. Uh, and remember, remembering things is hard, and you've got this smartphone right there in your pocket that can, can do the math for you, right? So someone put two and two together. Absolutely. Uh, something that was also big for me, uh, I don't know, you know how relevant it is to everyone else, uh, but the dice were so cool. I would love going to you know, a comic store or whatever and just like looking at all the dice and and thinking about buying a new set or whatever. Uh, I don't know what it is, you know? Uh, and Dungeons and Dragons, definitely, they, they tried to uh, uh, copy that when they were competing with Wizards of the Coast at the time, before 99. Uh, they, they tried to sell collectible dice and stuff like that. Didn't pan out for them. Uh, but, but if I had been playing then, definitely, definitely would have considered it. Yeah, it's, uh, the dice are a really good way almost a really good way of uh, getting people sucked into asking about the game. Everyone, that's if you ask anyone about Dungeons and Dragons, they, they, they know like, oh, there's like weird dice you roll, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you can Absolutely. talk about, oh yeah, like one of them is 20-sided, and they're like, what? And their mind <laughs> explodes, right? 
for whatever reason, it's yeah, it looks it looks interesting and kind of arcane and cool, and that kind of draws people in. Absolutely. Um, and then here with with the acquisition of Wizards of the Coast and then changing uh, how the game is played, it definitely becomes at its heart for me anyway a social game. You know, I enjoy obviously the mechanics and going through and all that, but really it's about you know I get to hang out with you know five of my friends and just like do fun stuff together. And ultimately, I think that's the best way to play the game. I've always had more fun playing it if I was already friends and just enjoyed hanging out with the people I was playing with than uh, signing up for a random game and, and you know trying to feel out the people I'm playing with and, and who knows if we our personalities really match or not. Right. Because yeah. at the end of the day, it is a, it is a lot more work uh, than a lot of other just kind of like fantasy-style games you can pick up and play in 2019. But... You know, that social aspect is a whole other dimension that you can really embrace. Absolutely. It makes it worth it. I, that, that's something I don't think we've hit on yet. Um, it, it is definitely a time investment. You know, creating your character, going through the manuals and reading and, and, and verifying that, you know, what you're doing on your stat sheet is correct. And then, you know, trying to optimize your character through his abilities and, you know, spells or attacks, uh, weapons, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that and, that's not even counting the dungeon master, you know, who's got to go through and create this incredibly complex game that can be totally derailed if right. you know, one of your players decides to make a decision that you hadn't foreseen. And if you've ever run any kind of tabletop game, you know that's almost guaranteed. Yeah. You you can spend hours, you know, trying to come up with a story hook and, and the different characters that your players are going to interact with. And, and for whatever reason, they'll get focused in on something totally different and ignore your, your subtle hints and they become increasingly less subtle. <laughs> it, it's all part of the fun. But yeah, it, there is, is certainly a, a large amount of prep work. And that's a challenge that all these editions of D&D have tried to address or struggled with if they didn't address properly. Absolutely. And, you know, I may... I. I may have been guilty of this once or twice, but you typically end up with one player at least at one point in time who is purposely, you know, just trying to completely derail what's going on, whether that's by, you know, chopping off the head of the guy who's supposed to be giving you all the plot uh, or, you know, just like, nope, I, I don't feel like I don't feel like doing that today. Not not going to happen. I'll say you're guilty of it. I don't think that's an incredibly common thing <laughs> for, uh, for for most people I've played with. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, know. you might be considered a problem player. I I could be. I, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. So, uh, two thousand. Let's 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 keep it on rolling. We're getting into the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons. The first one released by Wizards of the Coast. Um, they, they release it with a player's handbook, a dungeon master guide, and a monster manual. And, and these kind of come to, to, to be the main three books that are released with every edition uh, that you can play from. This is the basics. It has everything you need to be able to create a, a dungeon. And this is the first, first series where um, it is not released as an advanced quote-unquote uh, Dungeons and Dragons game because now they don't have to worry about giving royalties to Dave Arneson. Uh, Wizards also did something that, that, that was very unique uh, that was not done in the first two editions. Um, they, they released a publication under the Open Game License. Um, so basically this means third-party people could come in, take the D&D system, everything that was going on there, and use it to create their own games. And this is where we get those sci-fi, you know, Star Wars, uh, Tolkien, the whole Lord of the Rings series, Harry Potter, Marvel spin-offs of D&D. Yeah, this was massive. Yeah. Then them making it an open game license uh, expanded it beyond belief. This essentially ensures that this third edition D20 system formed the core rules of hundreds of tabletop RPGs and a lot of pretty famous video games too. Like if you've ever played the Knights of the Old Republic, Star Wars video games, or anything like that, they're all D twenty open game license based. Right. right. Uh, and so also in two thousand, uh, kind of as a result of this Gary Gygax trip out to Hollywood, 
uh, we get a movie. There is finally a D&D feature film. Fans uh, have waited for this for so long. And, and they were rewarded with their patience. <laughs> or some might say massively disappointed. Uh, because <laughs> this game, or this, this, this movie, got terrible reviews. Uh, I remember hearing about it from you. Uh, yeah, I, I saw time. this. I, I didn't know the history of this movie. I think... So, so, so the story, I, I kind of got, I was the first one to get interested in Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and I start, I, I taught a player two here and, um, some of my high school buddies and we kind of got into it. And then a high school buddy saw a copy of this in like the bargain bin at Walmart or something. And that's how we came to see it. And it's a gem. Let me tell you. I had no idea it existed until, you know, you told me about it. Um, and definitely from how you reacted to it, I knew it was going to be one of those movies that is so bad, it's funny, and can be enjoyed, even though it's absolutely terrible. And I was right. It was not it's a good It's incredibly movie. campy. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and it features uh, the one of the most famous characters, I think, of movie history, uh, Snails. Snails, yeah. Snails, yeah. Great, great, great bit of plot there. Uh, he was a he was a rogue, right? So he's playing the classic D and D archetype of the the thief, the kind of charismatic rogue character, uh, and he dies in the movie. Spoilers, uh, in case yeah. Um, and there's this really dramatic moment where the main character's like, "No snails." <laughs> it's I I don't know how it didn't win an Oscar. It yeah. was incredible. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I think definitely. he comes back at the end. Uh, details are fuzzy, but I think yeah. they kind of hint that snails is still kicking somewhere. It's been so long since I've seen it. I don't even remember. We're just gonna say that's what happened. All right, all right. It also, interestingly enough, uh, features a cameo uh, by one of the game's co-creators, Dave Arneson. Oh, he uh, comes back in the movie. Yeah, so even even after kind of being kicked out and them trying to prevent him from getting royalties and all that kind of stuff, he comes back, still associated with D&D even into the 2000s. Do you think this was sort of like an underhanded blow? Like, oh, come on, Dave, like be in our movie, and then they knew it was garbage? Well, this so... Was like- I, I think the movie was definitely restricted um, by a little bit Wizards of the Coast. Uh, from from what I've read, they sent out a big old team out there to make sure the movie went great, and really it just hampered the entire production. Sure. Um, they kept rewriting, and then they'd have to reshoot because they weren't happy with it. And then just kind of towards the end, eventually, uh, Wizards was like, you got to make the movie. we got to release it. Get it out. Finish it. Doesn't matter what it takes. Which which resulted in it being not the greatest. Um, so I, I don't I don't think it was a slight on Dave Arneson. I think uh, I think they really wanted him to be in it. Um, well, that's uh, cool yeah, then. Yeah, that's a nice resolution. Yeah. So uh, third edition. Moving on to kind of some of uh, what was changed there. Uh, sure. Uh, so we kind of already mentioned this incredibly popular D twenty system uh, that was developed in under the. Uh, open game license and it ends up being used for a ton of other tabletop RPGs and games as well. So essentially what this D20, so D20 refers to a dice, right? A 20-sided die is a D20. And in a D20 system, your all your success rolls are decided by rolling the 20-sided dice and then adding any relevant modifiers to it. And so that kind of streamlines anything. You always know like, oh, do I do this? Whatever the action is, roll the 20, add your modifiers. This also really expands all the different character options. So you have lots of different combat actions you can choose to take in combat or the kinds of uh, weapons you use. The characters can be incredibly diverse based on the number of, of skills and talents and feats you pick. And because it was this open game system, you also had a ridiculous amount of third-party content being made. And if we're being honest, a lot of it was like really broken and unbalanced, so that made it even more fun to try and convince your dungeon master to let you bring it to the table <laughs> and this is sort of the breaking point of how complex can you make a rule system so in third edition and third edition based games there's honestly a rule for virtually anything you can think of if you want to know you know what does it take to break down this door the dungeon master could just say like okay give me a roll and we'll see if you smash it 
Or if you wanted to, like you could find tables of of hardness based on material and how many hit points per square inch you have for this material and then like its resistance to damage. And so if there if you wanted to do something, there was a table that told you how you could do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're definitely starting to get into, you know, the current current D&D. Um, and it, 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 it's so interesting. I mean, you really just have the ability to do whatever you want. And as long as, like, you as the player and then your dungeon master are, are okay with that, like, you can just, you can do it, you know? It's so cool. And this is the first one on the list that I have played. Um well, so n- uh, not totally true. I'll, w- I'll wait till we get to three five. Yeah, three. Uh, I think three five is definitely where we where we both kind of jumped in. Um, so in two thousand one, uh, we have uh, uh, definitely a spinoff. Uh, there there was um, a game in a comic uh, that they called Hackmaster, and this was done to avoid you know any any license licensing issues with D and D. Um, Hackmaster started with the fourth edition uh, because in the comics they were they were on the third edition, so they continued on when they finally decided to release it as a real game from intense fan pressure. Um, it, it it was definitely a parody. Uh, the original edition of Hackmaster fourth edition was a parody. It it didn't have the seriousness and all the mechanics and all the freedom and ability that that you had in this third edition of D and D. It was, it was really well received though. People who were a fan of it uh, and wanted it to to continue on. Um, it actually won the Origins Award Game of the Year in two thousand and one for this first parody edition. Uh, so it ends up kind of taking on a more serious, more serious game qualities as they continue to update it. And most of the parody stuff ends up uh, being removed from it. Yeah, so they they take a pretty drastic change with their next edition uh fifth edition and it ends up earning this reputation as being a a very serious gritty uh and a little more challenging low fantasy system uh a little more similar to like the first editions of advanced dungeons and dragons so this is this is the first one on the list that i have played it's it's not the first role-playing game i played in in my life but uh first one we've covered today that i've played uh, and, the, and the term low fantasy basically means th- there's varying degrees of, of how magical and superhuman your characters are. In some editions, you're basically a demigod and you fight other like legendary creatures. But in Hackmaster, you're like a peasant who's slightly stronger than every other peasant in his village. And I, <laughs> yeah. only slightly. Yeah. Only slightly, right, right? Right. So what it does is this really puts the emphasis on your decision making. You can't afford to just fight creatures because you don't have superhuman endurance and healing abilities. One hit is enough to, to, to drop you. And you have to worry about when you miss with projectiles and stuff, like you can hit your allies. And so it does make you really work as a team. And it's a little more strategy-minded. So if you like the more war game flavor of earlier Dungeons & Dragons editions, then this sort of had that niche appeal to that crowd. And it was less of look at this cool character you've come up with and that kind of thing. And it definitely, the mechanics very different, very uh, greatly from the third edition or, or any of the early editions of Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, Cause correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, instead of having, you know, an initiative uh, turn-based kind of role-playing game, um, it, it, it's based on a counter, right? It's like time-based. Yes. You count seconds. Uh, every, every, that's, Correct, yeah. Every action you take, and it will change depending on your character. Your abilities will impact how long, how many seconds it takes for you to make an attack or to do an action or whatever. And so instead of taking turns, the the game master just starts counting one, two, three. And then maybe on turn three, your really fast peasant is like, all right, I I do my attack or whatever. Uh, So it is is a pretty unique system in that respect. Yeah, definitely way different mechanically uh but it, it ended up being you know fairly popular you know uh, i in, in the world of tabletop rpgs which not necessarily the most popular thing ever but it it it, it did pretty well it's it definitely a, a good a good little spin-off to touch on so yeah, i enjoyed t- playing it a lot yeah yeah that's i 
that's kind of uh, one of the ones that got me into playing. I played a little bit with you while I was in high school, uh, but then kind of hearing some of your Hackmaster stories and stuff, I was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get in on a game. Absolutely. So, in so two, oh, go ahead. 2003. Now we're moving. We're moving to a new edition. Uh, they they revised third edition due to you know kind of some consistent complaints uh, and, and and just general comments on on how to improve the game. Uh, so Wizards of the Coast releases version 3.5. And this is essentially like a patch notes or an update. Basically, so mechanically, almost everything is the same, and they basically just clean up on a lot of their print errata and try to put rules all in one place where it's easier to find things, and they try to balance some of the different classes a little bit better. They're not entirely successful, but it was a good effort. Um, one of the things you hear about when you start talking about Dungeons and Dragons is, is the concept of linear fighter, quadric wizard, and... The idea is when you first start out, all anyone does is, is hit things with sticks. And <laughs> fighters are, are the best at hitting people, and they have the biggest sticks. Right. But as your characters start to progress, all of a sudden wizards can start to warp reality with their magic spells, and your fighter is still just hitting things with sticks slightly better. So 3-5 was kind of an attempt to make all these different classes scale a little more equally. And... Perhaps for this reason, this is maybe the most popular Dungeons & Dragons system, especially if you kind of just lump it in with 3rd edition entirely. Uh, this is maybe the edition that gives you the most control over how your character plays and gives you the most rules to sift through and optimize. So this is really popular with your min-max type power players who look for you know, the best combination to do this one thing. Or maybe who want to do something really weird like play some Captain America build where you just throw shields on your opponent's turn and really it really appeals to the people who like to dig through lots of minute detail. I think on, on the hidden things with sticks note, um, I think this is something that uh, more, more casual players or, or maybe people who don't always have as much time kind of run into. Um, I, I know personally there's definitely been a couple times we've gone through and you know, you you can start out your campaign at different levels, but say we start out at level one or level two, and if we don't consistently play that campaign, you know, you're you're not getting over level five or level ten, you know. So the hidden things with sticks uh, was definitely relevant to me. Um, I sure, uh, yeah, I I definitely I played a dragonborn fighter because I knew you know our campaign wasn't gonna last very long, so I I hit the guy who hit. Who chose the guy who hit things with sticks really well because I knew it'd work. Yeah, that's the best strategy at that. And that's typically and this is this is personal opinion. Um, but but typically as as these tabletop role playing games progress, when you start it's it's people hitting people with sticks. It's like it's like watching six year olds play soccer, you know, yeah. like it's um, it can be slow in the sense that it takes a long time to accomplish a certain thing and you're very limited in what you can do. And then as you level up, at some point, it becomes rocket tag, where you have all these crazy powers, and like the guy who goes first or lands his spell first will just grenade the other guy, and then like that's it. And right. So in my opinion, usually there's there's a, a sweet spot from like levels three to eight, where you don't have too many powers and abilities to keep track of, but you've got access to enough that all your characters feel different, and you can kind of do the plan that you had when you made your character. That seems to be the sweet spot. Absolutely. And, and you know, this is kind of, uh, it, it is such an open game, right? Like you aren't in a video game. You, you don't have to level up and grind. Sure. Uh, sometimes you can, you know, just say, all right, everyone, we're, we're all starting this campaign at level four. That way it kind of gives you a little bit more freedom when creating your character, kind of gets you started it uh, gives you a little bit more fun things to work with instead of the single stick and one attack option. Yeah, absolutely. So, 2007, a uh, little jump in 40 years here uh, from that three and a half little patch. Uh, we get the fourth editions of Dungeon and Dragons. Uh, and it is announced at Gen Con, where kind of the whole thing started, where all of our creators really met and got going. So they published the fourth edition. 
uh, which again includes that player's handbook, dungeon master's guide and monster manual. Uh, but they also add on a new book called the adventurer's vault, uh, which contains equipment and treasure. And so again, this is kind of your, your basic, everything you need to get going. Uh, but we also kind of see coming into the trend here by adding that adventurer's vault, um, something that starts to kind of put a little seed in people that uh, Wizards is really trying to make money by releasing a new edition. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, so they again release that open game license so third-party publishers can work with any fourth edition mechanics or anything like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And so fourth edition in terms of reception is maybe the least popular version of Dungeons and Dragons. But interestingly enough, it was also the first version that we played. Uh, when yeah. I was like, oh man, I want to learn about Dungeons and Dragons, they were printing fourth edition, and I was that's the rule books I bought. And one of the main goals of this system, it was a pretty serious overhaul. And the reason they did it was because they wanted to make it more accessible to new tabletop players. And so from my perspective, in a way, it worked, right? Because we got into the game and picked it up pretty easily for being high school kids. Yeah, this one was was pretty easy for me to understand. You know, I was able to just kind of read through that player's handbook, uh, maybe, you know, a little bit of the monster and and the dungeon master guide. But just off that, I was able to get a pretty good understanding of most of the mechanics that I use, you know, in any any version of D&D now. Yeah. So in in that sense, it was quite successful. Um, But you see this problem in really pick pick your favorite medium. Yeah. Anytime they try to, a company tries to expand their product or make it more uh, accessible, the hardcore and long-term fans are typically upset and enjoy the product less. And, and Exactly. And when it comes to 4th edition, I would say they were kind of justified. Essentially, in this redesigned system, all classes function the exact same, and really the only thing that changes is... The, the thematic flavoring. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, in older editions, right, fighters would hit things with sticks, and you had rules for how much you could attack in a turn and, and your attack chance. And then your spellcaster types would have a totally different system for they would cast spells and like they would automatically hit, and then the other guys would roll to see if they would avoid it. So it everything felt different, and the way you built each class, you had to it was entirely a different structure. And so while that required you to learn the structure for that class, every time you wanted to make a new character, it meant that your play experience didn't feel the same every time you rolled up someone new. Whereas in fourth edition, it was the exact same. If you're a wizard or a fighter, it didn't matter. You pick uh, a power at each level and it's split into how often you can use it, whether it was whenever you want or once an in-game day or that kind of thing. Every skill check, every roll that you make with a 20-sided die progresses at a rate of one half your level. So you just gradually get better at everything at the same rate. You don't kind of spec into different things. And then uh, they do add healing surges and short, long rests, which is sort of how you manage your health and your ability, how often you can use it. And this was actually a popular edition, and this gets carried over into a lot of other games. And they also expand the max level of the characters. So typically it's level 20 is sort of the top end and most people don't ever play to that high of a level anyway for the rocket tag reasons I mentioned earlier. But fourth edition, you go all the way out to 30. So if you have those kinds of players who are really interested in this really high fantasy, epic proportions, fighting for the fate of the multiverse, right? Then you have that option. In addition to the game mechanics, 4th edition was criticized for being released so close to 3.5, which, you know, you mentioned earlier. Uh, Investing in these Dungeons & Dragons books is kind of costly, especially if you're the game master and you want to have access to all the different rules. Absolutely. Yeah, some people had bought into 3.5, and then four years later it was like, oh, no, you got to buy these new books now. Got to buy a whole new set, which, yeah, the the set, and especially if you want to have everything that you kind of want to really be able to create a whole new dungeon, costs a lot of money. And then to kind of compound on that fact, uh, they were releasing essentially new editions of these core rulebooks. So Player's Handbook 2, Monster Manual 2, Dungeon Master's Guide 2. Yeah, they were uh, churning them out. Almost yearly. 
And so people started to feel like it was essentially DLC where, why didn't I get all the content when I bought Player's Handbook 1? Right, right. Uh, and on top of that, when people didn't like the, the, the more casual, dumbed-down system where your fighter has spells, right, uh, it kind of sealed the fate of 4th edition. Absolutely. Um, so I will say, I mean, we enjoyed it playing, but I, I haven't wanted to go back to it since I've learned other systems. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it was a great un- introduction. I, I, I think they did hit it on the head with that. I think uh, it, it was a more simplistic system that if you wanted to get into it, you really could. And, and it didn't take a ton. So you could bring in a friend who, you know, wasn't exactly super nerdy or D&D wasn't his thing. Uh, and you could teach to him and, and you, you could pick it up. It was great. And it'd be a fun game. But I, I haven't wanted to go back to it either. That's for sure. So kind of on uh, where I mentioned earlier how uh, it, it felt like Wizards was trying to make money off of it and all this kind of stuff. Uh, in in 2008, there was another another uh, spinoff, we'll call it, uh, was released. Um, there's a company called Paizo. Is that, is that how you say it? I don't, yep, I don't know how yep, to pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, Paizo, right. I believe is correct. Paizo. Uh, they, they were producing third-party content for Wizards of the Coast on Dungeons & Dragons stuff. Uh, th- they had a system called Pathfinder. Um, and the company and, and a lot of the staff wasn't super happy with how the development of 4th Edition was going. Um, they, they weren't too excited about releasing third-party content for it uh, based on kind of the vibes they were getting with how they were going to be releasing it and stuff. Um, and uh, the more restrictive license that it was being put under. So instead of continuing to support uh, Dungeons & Dragons, they decided to release their own edition. Uh, and this is a standalone game called Pathfinder Role-Playing Game, uh, and it was a modified version of 3.5. So back to the a little bit more complicated mechanics, uh, a little bit more free gaming type system. Um, and it was a pretty big hit. I know this is probably the the version that I have enjoyed playing the most. Um, uh, could could have been you know just our campaign or whatever, but I I had a blast with uh, you know the mechanics uh, and everything that was in it. And uh, as you heard earlier at the intro to our episode, I was an elf Zen archer monk in Pathfinder, and it was so much fun. Oh, it was so cheesy. <laughs> I mean, there might have been a little cheese in it, but hey. It's all, it it's all part of the game. Unbelievably man. good. <laughs> Which I guess we were we were allies, right? So I was all about it. Right. I, I loved me some Zen Archer Monk. Absolutely, because I was I was doing some great damage, killing some monsters for us, you know? It was good. So Pathfinder had a really good reception. Uh, it was it was definitely enjoyed uh, by some of the more hardcore fans as it was based on 3.5 and had a lot of those mechanics. Uh, and this is kind of where we get into uh, uh, where I talked about earlier changing from that paper role-playing game over to this electronic recording system. So Pathfinder released um, uh, a character creation document that was in Excel. Uh, and everything was essentially calculated for you. You just had to go through and make all the choices, You know, go through all the drop-down menus or whatever. Uh, and it would really assist you in creating your character and removing some of that uh, math and all that kind of stuff at the beginning uh, and definitely made it way simpler to get into really yeah the the work required to make a, a character particularly someone above level one in a 3.5 based system is is pretty serious honestly um, you have you can get bonuses to the same skill or attack from three or four different places from your equipment from choices you make leveling up from the race you chose at the start of the game and yeah, this spreadsheet would would just track all of that for you. Absolutely, it was it was so useful. I uh, I was definitely glad glad that they made it and that I had it. So, Pathfinder, and I'm gonna call it first edition because uh, they have announced a second edition in development very recently. Uh, I believe they started in 2018. So, uh, as mentioned earlier, it's essentially a cleaned up, more balanced and condensed version of 3.5 where they try to get all the rules in an orderly fashion again and make sure all the different class choices are, are balanced. And so just like 3.5 was was sort of an update to th- the 3rd edition, Pathfinder is essentially 3.75, right? 
There was one really important difference, though, and I think this was really critical to its success. Uh, all Since it was based on the open game license of 3rd edition, all this material is available online for free on the Pathfinder website at any given point. And it has a pre- it uses Google search, so it's, it's fairly simple to find what you're looking for. And I think that was huge moving into the more digital age when you have this complex rule system that I don't buy books. I just have like eight tabs open in Google Chrome, keeping track of my different items and rules and spells or whatever. Yeah, that was, uh, I, that was super useful for me, really. Instead of having to flip through pages of a book, just, you know, control F uh, or exactly. search, search their website and find, find that question on the ability we're having that, oh, can I actually do that? Yeah, yeah, I can. And the ability as a, a game master trying to get new people in to play your game, instead of having to be like, okay, like, you know, Dave, you can borrow my book, but like, I need you to be done with it by Tuesday so I can give it to this other guy who I'm trying to get in. Whereas like, you could just send them d20pfsrd.com. You just send them a link and you're just like, read this. You yeah. Know? yeah. Uh, and if you have any questions, like text me or something. And- it's a big deal. Wizards of the Coast definitely picked up on that. That's something that they've added to their fifth edition, uh, which yes. we'll get into here in a second. Um, and but, la- lastly, the oh, go ahead. Uh, well, so the the Pathfinder Second Edition, uh, which uh, they're, they're planning on releasing, um, that it, it was open for playtesting in 2018, um, which which is a big deal as people loved Pathfinder, so getting a new edition uh, always always exciting. And so the success of Pathfinder 1st Edition was in a large part due to the fact that there were a lot of kind of diehard Dungeons & Dragons fans who were very disappointed with 4th Edition and were looking for something closer to what they were familiar with and enjoyed. Uh, and 1st Edition actually outsold Dungeons & Dragons uh, up until Wizards of the Coast released D&D 5th Edition. So there's some speculation that that the second edition of Pathfinder is going to move in the direction of fifth edition uh, with the goal of being a little more streamlined rule system to kind of reduce the complexity and, and the intimidation factor of the game, but but still have that balance of unique characters and, and, and choices. Yeah, yeah. It, it They're definitely trying to appeal to a bit wider of an audience, uh, and, and we do start to see this with the release of, of 5th edition. Um, so in 2014, uh, the 5th edition was released. Um, the initial product was a free online version of the D&D Basic Rules. Uh, and that marked the 40th anniversary of the publication of the game. So 5th edition is an interesting one. And basically, Wizards of the Coast realize that some of the mistakes they made with 4th edition, making it too cookie cutter, too simple, really pushed away some of the hardcore fan base. And so 5th edition, they really, really tried to strike a balance between letting you have all the options you could want for character diversity and and different play styles and, and that kind of thing, but not having to keep track of a million little bonuses and, and 12 Google Chrome tabs of, of different rules and and eight different rule books and, and that sort of thing. And a couple of the mechanic mechanical changes that they've made to do this, and which in my opinion have been by and large successful, uh, we're going to what's called an advantage system, where instead of accumulating all these little plus one to your roll, plus two to your roll from different sources for a certain thing, you either get advantage, which lets you roll two dice and take the higher one, or you get disadvantage where you roll two and take the lower one. So it's sort of, it's just very simple. Like if you have something that makes your character good or, or have the upper hand in a situation, it's like, oh, advantage. You don't, you don't worry about, is this a plus four or a plus two? Or if it's half cover, is it plus three or whatever? It's just like advantage, disadvantage, go. And it also has the effect of reducing the need to min-max. You don't have to always be trying to get little incremental bonuses in the one thing you're good at because... You can only get advantage once. So like once you've got it, you're encouraged to go explore other options as well. And they also go through uh, and they also go through and, and try to reduce the, the number of like skills and, and different 
abilities your character has, or they try to make it all focused around those core six abilities you talked about at the beginning. This is uh, this is one of the additions I know we've both played uh, recently. Uh, we played in a couple games together uh, with some friends, and I've enjoyed it. I think uh, I, th- I think some of the changes that they made have been pretty good. Um, it, it it keeps it onto that core thread, though. It's not like you're having to relearn uh, a ton of stuff, which which has been an issue before. Um, but yeah, I I've really enjoyed the fifth edition so far. It's keeping it a fun game for me. I would say this is maybe the one I've played the most in the last two or three years, um, which is maybe a testament because I I've uh, played a lot with a lot of new people. I've I've had friends and they're just like, oh, we're interested in D and D, and I'm like, really? I've played for you know. I love D&D. I've been playing for years. Like, let's do it. And 5th edition is is the one that typically people pick. And I think Wizards hit the sweet spot in terms of uh, being newbie-friendly and being interesting enough and familiar enough for uh, a seasoned veteran to enjoy playing. Yeah. I and I, I think that is something that, that's really starting to come up, is new people really being... Uh, interested in Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, this is definitely uh, attributed to kind of the the common social theme now, and and, and a lot of stuff that's happening in media. What one of the biggest ones uh, that really pushed it was the hugely popular uh, show on Netflix, Stranger Things, um, where the kids play D and D, and it and it, it drew a ton of interest. The the spikes and like. Google searches and and everyone uh, purchasing it and all that kind of stuff were, were huge around the release of Stranger Things, uh, which I thought was hilarious. I, I know people and have friends who uh, not into anything nerdy at all, and they're coming up and you know asking me about Dungeons and Dragons or whatever. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how that kind of branding works. And I think there was kind of a similar trend uh, just a few years earlier when I was in college. Uh, where the the TV show Community would have these Dungeons and Dragons episodes, yeah, uh, once a season, and uh, honestly, that's maybe one of the more accurate representations of what a real D and D game uh, plays <laughs> right, out like. Right, right, right. Um, you know, at least in in Hollywood adaptions, but I, I think is you know, it's definitely way more socially acceptable to be into kind of like these vintage board games and like you know, do more hipster stuff, like sit at a coffee shop and, and play some role-playing game with your friends. Like, that's almost normal now. For sure, yeah. And that's been a huge boon for Dungeons & Dragons. Absolutely. I Even hitting on, you know, on our first episode, like, I have someone who I didn't even know played video games or anything like that at all. And all of a sudden I see them, like, they're watching, they're watching uh, like, the Genesis 6 Super Smash Brothers Melee like pro fighting tournament. And I'm like, what? Like I, you, you haven't done anything that I like even remotely know about. That's nerdy at all. And now sure. like, you're playing dungeons and dragons and watching smash bros melee. That's crazy. Well, it's yeah, it's, it's almost not even nerdy anymore. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's moving towards the mainstream, which, you know, always comes with good and bad stuff. Of course. Yeah. They talk about, you know, you either, you, you die a hero or live long enough to be the enemy, right? And so fourth edition was definitely the enemy. Uh, it was too casual for, you know, some people to really recognize and enjoy. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see how they kind of walk the line with new releases. And Yeah, absolutely. Or do they just ride fifth edition? Uh, you know, I mean, fifth edition's been good so far. It's had a good reception. Uh, they could could definitely definitely continue with it for a little while, but you know they'll put out something. They'll they'll yeah. have to start well, making more money it, off it eventually. It's interesting because so like if you look at the gap between like three five and and fourth edition, or which was like four or five years, and then the gap between fourth edition and fifth edition, which was six, uh, and fifth edition's been out for five years almost now. Almost five, yeah. So. Uh, it, you know maybe it's coming up i don't know yeah it could be absolutely i mean who knows these well, are this is like the only core product for wizards right they have this in magic and yeah. so those two need to be doing well absolutely and they're always looking for ways to make it like the the next how do we how do we improve maybe this little bit of resurgence uh is keeping them on fifth edition for a while we'll see so i kind of got a wrap-up question for you Absolutely. Uh, 
if you had to pick favorite edition, if you were going to play it right now, what would it be? Um, I, I really enjoyed the Pathfinder edition. Could have been a little bit of my character. Could have been a little bit of you know the group we had, how we were playing, uh, everyone else's characters, and just having a lot of fun with that. Uh, but I, I would definitely say Pathfinder. So would your choice change depending on the group you're going to be playing with? So like if you were getting, if it was us and college friends and we were going to play a game, it sounds like Pathfinder would be the choice. Path first edition, you'd be like, that's what I want to do. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so now let me flip it and say. Uh, new group of friends, maybe you started a new job, getting along with your coworkers, and like, hey, we're gonna hang out. I want to interested in playing D and D. Ben, can you teach us? Definitely. What edition I, do you pick? I think you got to choose fifth edition. I, you know, we I, we definitely hit on that. Um, that I, I think that's the way to go. It's the newest. It's easiest for everyone to access. Uh, w- whether that's you know the material or understanding the game, um, I, I think fifth edition would definitely be the way to go. Yeah, I'd, I'd say I agree with those choices. I think that's the way I would do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, the, I, I've enjoyed all of them. You know, I, I don't think they've they've butchered or brutalized anything. They've all been fun, enjoyable games. Uh, they just all have, you know, their different quirks that make them, make them unique additions. Well, thanks for listening in, guys. I'm uh, your player two, Ben Lovell. Uh, and I'm player one, Seth. Thank you guys so much.